Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to David Katz about his recent book, Yiddish and Power, in which he charts the course of the history of Yiddish and explores the factors that have influenced and continue to influence its development. In this interview, we discuss some of the major turning points in that history, but also focus on Yiddish as a marker of religious and cultural identity and how that status has been contested through the centuries from within the community as well as through external oppression. I'm delighted to welcome David Katz to talk about his book, Yiddish and power. David, what inspired you to address this precise topic? Well, Chris, first, thanks for your interest in speaking to me. I guess the most direct answer is that these topics have consumed me all my life, starting when I was growing up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in a Yiddish-speaking home of my late father, the Yiddish poet Benke Katz. And having written earlier treatments, I felt that the history of Yiddish had sped up. It was speeding up in the last 10 years. So since completing my previous um, book for a wider audience, uh, Words on Fire, The Unfinished Story of Yiddish, first edition 2004, so many things happened and also changes in perspective that go back hundreds of years that I felt I needed as long as I'm alive to try to keep bringing things up to date. One of the things I found particularly fascinating about your book is not just the, the treatment of the history of the language, but also because there are so many um, debates, right. both historical and contemporary, about language prestige and control and so on that are, that are echoed or in some cases foreshadowed in the history of Yiddish. Was that something you were very conscious of as you were writing? Yes. Um, in fact, the older I get, the freer I feel to write and talk about it because it is a very prominent part of the biography or linguography of Yiddish. Um, In other words, trying to treat Yiddish exactly like you would treat French, Spanish, German uh, runs into some obstacles because of the empirical historical differences. Yiddish had never been the language of a nation state with an army, a navy, and a police force. Within the Jews of Europe and within Yiddish-speaking Jewry, Yiddish was the non-sacred vernacular, always in a very delicate relationship with Hebrew and Aramaic, the two sacred languages. So Yiddish had this freedom, this ability to be used, to be abused, to be lifted, to be run down, to be declared dead, to be revived in service to all all kinds of extra linguistic movements, whether religious or secular, um, or to do with the empowerment of groups in Jewish society for whom Yiddish was the only way toward world. On that theme, when you when you discuss the early history of Yiddish, or at least the early the early um, historical record as concerns Yiddish, there's a transition which is quite interesting from the focus on scripts that are not of particular religious significance to the the gradual encroachment onto the the domains of those sacred languages. Right. Thank you, Chris. That's a very very salient point. So we have to say something about the society where Yiddish was born and grew up. Uh, That society is known as Ashkenaz, the Ashkenazic lands that were initially the German-speaking lands, where Yiddish was born around a thousand years ago, but then expanded to different parts of Europe uh, via migrations and because of expulsions, massacres, blood libels, and so forth. Now, in this primeval Ashkenazic society, we see that Hebrew and Aramaic, the two languages of culture, are limited to men, and not only to men, but to a small percentage of men. 
only a small percentage could actually read the previously unseen Hebrew book and understand it. Um, a smaller percentage still could write in Hebrew. Then there was the most sacred language, Aramaic, the language of Kabbalah and Talmud, the two highest, most esoteric, most difficult um, topics in the culture in its own eyes, leaving Yiddish as just the vernacular. So it's fascinating that the first Yiddish works that have come our way um, from medieval times are reworkings of medieval German, sometimes Italian, romances, epic romances, medieval knightly stories that would have been a a source of great pleasure and edification to women who suddenly had access to the pleasures of reading and to many men who did not partake of the higher culture in the eyes of the society, the Hebrew and Aramaic culture. So yes, that first phase of Yiddish literature is quite secular. And then once Yiddish is empowered naturally over hundreds of years, by hundreds of years of stability, of, of um, as it were, conquering new lands when the Jews moved into Poland and the Baltic countries in Eastern Europe. Um, we then find religious people, including rabbis and scholars, getting into the fray and saying, wait a minute, this Yiddish could corrupt everybody if, it will, if the vernacular will be only for these silly stories about knights and love and murder. Um, Let's start a religious literature in Yiddish. And that happened much later. But the 16th century, the later 16th century, is when it really, really crystallized into a second period of Yiddish. Yes, indeed. So uh, so you identify that among the publishers of that time, there's, let's say, either a certain amount of caution or a certain amount of tact being exercised in who they address as their audience for these works. Yes. Yiddish publishing starts in the 1530s, in the 1540s, in Krakow in the East, in Izni in the West, Um, and it starts in a very curious way. The first publishers tend to be either Christian or Jews who became Christians, who were baptized or who would become baptized. In other words, it was a very risque enterprise that did not have any stamp of approval of the rabbinic authorities. Um, but it quickly went into the realm of commerce. In other words, not only rabbis deciding what's good and bad, but business people, publishers, printers, distributors, deciding how they can do well. And therefore, the publishers were very keen on producing a diversity of books, secular, religious, philological, dictionaries, whatever they thought would sell. Um, so, yes, the first period of Yiddish literature in the 1530s and 40s was uh, very much in flux. By the 1550s and 60s, you begin to have Jewish families becoming established publisher families in Prague and, and, and elsewhere, certainly a little later in Amsterdam. Yep. And presumably, just as the question of the, of the imprimatur isn't so relevant for the nightly romances, it becomes extremely uh, contentious very quickly when we move into the sacred text. Yes, when we move into the religious period, firstly, very many of the books have the, um, the announcement on the title page for all pious women and girls. Um, so to make the woman feel she has a special book that's just for her. And that was, of course, not only socially, but commercially significant. We know from many sources that many men read these books also, but they were officially for women. And by the end of the 16th century, you have books that have a higher religious level written by very uh, serious rabbis who are no longer embarrassed about writing in Yiddish. To the contrary, they feel that they are warriors in the culture war against the reading of secular romances like King Arthur and, 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 and others tales or the Bovo book that became so beloved over over centuries. You uh, draw a parallel at a couple of places between the discussions that that took place in the early uh, the religious early religious period of Yiddish publishing mm-hmm. uh, and discussions that had happened millennia earlier about the status of vernacular languages uh, yes. in terms of their use in prayer. A very much a symmetrical parallel repeat of what had happened with Aramaic that there were those who opposed Aramaic when Aramaic replaced Hebrew millennia earlier, 
Aramaic replaced Hebrew probably shortly after 586 BC when Judea, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of the Israelites fell to the Babylonians. But Hebrew was kept alive as a written language, as a recited and studied language. But there was a lot of opposition to Aramaic. And then there were the so-called Hellenistic cultural snobs who would say things like, if it isn't going to be classical Hebrew, let it be Greek. We don't want this non-Hebrew Jewish jargon Aramaic, which of course was Jewish Aramaic is a delicate fusion of Hebrew with um, older Aramaic Chaldaic elements, analogous to the way Yiddish is a fusion of Germanic with Semitic and mostly Aramaic elements. Um, So yes, that debate on language recreated itself on a number of occasions, most famously in the 19th century when proponents of modernization in Eastern Europe would say things like Hebrew or German, no Yiddish, or Hebrew or Russian, no Yiddish. Yeah, so we do have those debates. But the earliest debates about Yiddish predate the era of publishing. They go back to the manuscript period when the medieval scholar, the Maharil, for example, protested um, in the 14th and 15th century about um, Jews rhyme, uh, singing rhyming songs in Yiddish about God. He was not protesting secular romances. He was amazingly protesting that Jews use Yiddish for religious songs. Today, I think most rabbis would be quite happy if people were singing songs about devotion to God. But then he explains himself. He writes that there are such people who think that if they sing these songs, they are not obligated by all the other precepts and commandments that the faith dictates, like putting on the phylacteries in the morning for men, prayer three times a day, and so forth. So Yiddish has been seen as a challenge to orthodoxy from the 15th century onward. And another related topic that you raise yep. is the uh, tension between the uh, the obligation to, to pray in particular ways using particular formulas and the obligation to pray with true and devout intentions. Yes. yes. Which is an argument that has been used by both sides, I suppose, at some point in this, yeah. in this debate. It's been used by both sides for at least 600 years, and it's still used today. One side of the argument says that if you are praying to God, you must understand every word, and if you don't understand the ancient Hebrew and Aramaic, you better pray in the vernacular. In modern, non-Orthodox Jewish movements, reform, liberal Um, There are many echoes of that to this day, although in recent decades there's been a return to the Hebrew text, at least for part of the service. So that's one side of the argument. You must understand every word. The other side of the argument says, no, there's a certain psychodrama, there's a certain sanctity, a certain spiritual high of praying from the text your forefathers and foremothers prayed from. And then you can translate it to understand it, but It's saying those ancient words that has the sanctity, not the everyday language that we all use for everyday nonsense to also be used for speaking to God. So that's the other side of the argument. Now, the compromise or the solution that was developed by the 16th, especially in the 17th century, was the multilingual or bilingual prayer book, where the top half is the Hebrew Aramaic and the bottom half is the Yiddish. So there have been thousands of editions of prayer books, Bibles, and other sacred texts following that formula. But throughout the history of Yiddish, there's been rebellion. There's been those who said, what do we need this Hebrew for that no one understands? In the 1670s and 80s in Amsterdam, you had two uh, competing Bible translators producing beautiful big volumes of the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in Yiddish only. In the 18th century, you had such prayer books coming out of Amsterdam. So these were going against the grain, and they didn't succeed beyond a a limited amount of time and circle of people because the classic edition that satisfied everybody with Hebrew on top of Yiddish at the bottom was the one that became, uh, was was good for all sides. And um, presumably this also interfaces with with questions about the particular traditions of of, uh, very close reading of the scripture and particular kinds of interpretation, for example, Kabbalistic interpretation. Yes. Um, 
the Kabbalah, according to Jewish tradition, may only be studied by men, by males over 40 who are already very devout and very learned in the legal Talmudic literature. So whether one believes that or not, it is a good encapsulation of the general feeling about mysticism, that it's not for the masses. That was the classic view anyway. And so there was a lot of resistance to mystical books being translated into Yiddish. And that began to be challenged in the 17th century, especially after the Khmelnytsky massacres in Ukraine of 1648 and 1649, when there were many messianic moods, messianic yearnings, harking back to the ancient Kabbalistic dictum that Messiah's coming would be presaged by terrible terrible things happening by awful massacres. You have the false Messiah, Shabzai Tzvi, Shabzai Tzvi, um, and uh, a century later, the Hasidic movement in Eastern Europe. But there had been the project to translate the classic text of the Kabbalah, the most classic text, the Zohar, and it came to fruition after a hundred years of controversy and dithering um, in 1711 in Frankfurt when Tzvi Hirschotsch uh, published his Zohar edition. Um, in the end, it says in the introduction that the most secret parts have been taken out to satisfy the, uh, the so-called censors, the internal uh, Jewish censors. Um, but I have to make very clear that Kabbal- original works of Kabbalah were never written in Yiddish. They were written in Hebrew or much more likely in Aramaic if they were high-level Kabbalah. Um, turning back to the historical record, um, you, you identify a power shift from the west to the east of Ashkenaz, from the German to the Slavic regions around the 16th century. What are the major causes? Right. Of course, um, historians and historical linguists love to have a, a year or a century. And so the late Max Weinreich established the year 1500 as the year of equilibrium after which things shift to the east. If you look more closely, you see a pattern over hundreds of years. So when the Ashkenazim built their first civilization around a thousand years ago, a little bit more, on the banks of the Rhine um, in the west and the Danube to the east, um, both sides of that German-speaking area, there was a relatively brief period of peace and tranquility that was sadly followed by horrific medieval massacres. Now, we who live today in Christian-dominated countries are very lucky to live in the most tolerant, liberal, advanced societies. That was not the case in the Middle Ages, where um, the Crusades, uh, called in 1095 and starting in 1096, targeted the Jews and other non-Christians on site or en route to um, retrieving the Holy Grail in Jerusalem. So you began to have a period of massacres, Um, They were not genocide in the modern sense because every Jew had the option to be baptized and save him or herself. But it was mass murder and there was um, mass migration fleeing all these troubles of the Crusades and the Black Death and the Rindfleisch massacres and so on and so forth. The countries of Eastern Europe in the Kingdom of Poland and more so in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania were at the time vastly more tolerant to religious diversity. And the explanation is, it's not a popular word, uh, paganism. Uh, I prefer multi-theism. And you can explain it rather simply, that if I believe in the sun and the moon and the stars and the firmament and the sea and all kinds of gods, the last thing on my mind is to kill somebody or want to kill somebody because two very similar religions who believe in the precisely the same Messiah um, being a, a descendant of King David, uh, and one says he came once and will return, and the other says he, he never came, he's going to come the first time, would seem rather ridiculous. So the Jews found um, refuge in Eastern Europe where Christianity was still relatively weak and new, and in the Lithuanian Grand Duchy where it had not even arrived. So Eastern Europe became the new Ashkenaz, or Ashkenaz II eventually, after hundreds of years of both existing. So all the Yiddish you can hear in the world today is Eastern Yiddish, one of the three major dialects. Western Yiddish died out as a viable living language a long time. The um, the loss of the cultural identity of, of Western Ashkenaz, the loss of the language, um, does that have to do with 
societal factors or are linguistic factors also relevant right. to that? Um, it's very difficult uh, to give a single answer. In the, by the early to mid-18th century, Western Yiddish is already weakening in terms of its literary output. There are already signs of attrition uh, to the local German dialect, or more likely to formal uh, standard German. The center of gravity of Ashkenazic culture had long been in the East in any case. But on top of that attrition, that natural weakening, declining population and assimilation, came the German-Jewish Enlightenment, most associated with Moses Mendelssohn, who wanted to get rid of what he regarded as the ugly, contemptible jargon, a word borrowed from the French, and to get Jews to speak German. And that movement in a few short years succeeded in replacing Western Yiddish with German. One of the most um, interesting chronicles of that process uh, um, can be found in the vast publishing campaign to wean Jews off Yiddish by publishing new prayer books, religious books, Bibles that would be written using the classic Yiddish type font known as Mashkit, using classic Yiddish orthographic principles where Aleph is A or O and the letter Ayin is E, but the language is German, not Yiddish. In other words, to wean the Jews off Yiddish. And of course, Mendelssohn and his um, followers um, mounted a very vigorous campaign against and they did that in the name of creating the modern Jews, who could be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant working with non-Jews, but be of the Mosaic faith. So many of us may not like to admit it, but those of us who live our lives in the wider world and uh, are Jewish nonetheless, we do go back to that shift because before Mendelssohn, every Jew virtually was someone who prayed three times a day, who followed all the laws and blessings, who kept the Sabbath, so this enlightenment created the modern secular Jew, the modern Jew for whom Judaism is just a religion rather than a civilization that encompasses culture, dress, and so on. Um, so Western Yiddish declined very strongly, and Eastern Yiddish began to rise at the same time um, by leaps and bounds that had scarcely been imaginable a few years before. I was uh, going to ask you specifically about your Probably unfair to ask you for a, for a synoptic view of of uh, Moses Mendelssohn's intellectual project of the Germanization. I sense that I mean your treatment of it is very considered and balanced in in your book. Presumably, how you see it from the point of view of, uh, of a scholar of Yiddish is perhaps how you uh, different to how you see it as a as an individual in this culture. Right. Um, I gather from your question, Chris, that you picked up between the lines that I'm not quite as objective as I pretend to be in that chapter. Um, oh, who is? Um, uh, in that chapter, of course, I quote both sides of the argument as a scholar must do in a scholarly work. So the defenders of Mendelssohn correctly point out that he saw a lot of anti-Semitism and he saw the lack of participation by Jews in the wider society. And he was convinced and he believed with all his heart, truly, that if he created a new Jew who spoke perfect German, and was a perfect German just of another religion, just like there are German Protestants, German Catholics, and indeed others, that would be the end of enmity toward Jews. Jews would be fully accepted. And it's a little unfair to Mendelssohn to tell him now that, you know, he didn't anticipate the Nazis all those that, uh, generations later. Um, so the experiment t totally failed. It turns out that uh, anti-Semitism can thrive in countries where the Jews are the most assimilated as it did in, uh, in Hitler's Germany to start with. But we Yiddishists from the cultural movement of Yiddish, the word has different meanings, um, in the cultural movement of Yiddish, Mendelssohn and David Friedlander and uh, Eichel or Eichel, his whole crew are regarded as self-hating Jews, as people who hate their own language, people who, in fact, pick up on the anti-Semitism that is about and internalize it. Anti-Semites had written dozens of books in Germany in the 18th century all about Yiddish. For me, it's a lifetime occupation to study those books because they give wonderful data about the Yiddish linguistically, but that's another discussion. These books claim that Yiddish is a secret code 
by which the Jews uh, curse Christ, curse Christians, treat them in business, and that once this, and Mendelssohn internalized that and thought that once he'd get rid of Yiddish, there'd be no problem anymore with German Jewry. So Yiddish became a very important part of Mendelssohn's psyche and the psyche of the German Jew who hated Yiddish uh, and, until modern times. So in the Yiddishist tradition, yes, they were our opponents in the, uh, in the world of ideas all these hundreds of years later, because those anti-Yiddish thoughts, of course, later spread to Eastern Europe to assimilationists who wanted Jews to speak Russian or Polish or Lithuanian or Romanian or whatever the national language uh, was. So you have, and then of course it was picked up by the Hebrew movement, the Hebraist Zionist movement that hated Yiddish with a much greater passion than the Mendelssohnians. And that created a new spoken language in Palestine and then in Israel by consciously stopping to speak their native language and starting to speak a language nobody had spoken for 2000 years. Obviously not the same language, the same way, but thought they were doing that. So yes, um, the field of Yiddish is full of these fascinating conflicts. Another um, another aspect of Mendelssohn's view, which you bring out, is this idea that if we assume that he's not convinced that, along with the anti-Semites of his era that you cite, that Yiddish is being used for intrinsically nefarious purposes, he nevertheless does seem to believe that it's a deficient language by comparison with German, and he seems to believe that language determines thought. Yes in some intrinsic way. And that, that struck me as an idea that uh, is also, has also been sort of recurring and repurposed that different people at different times seem to, have, seem to have believed in the subsequent history of the language. Right, absolutely right. Well, I think you've touched on, on, on several points here. One is that the 18th century German anti-Semites who made these accusations against Yiddish in their books often called Yiddish ugly, barbaric, jargonized, incapable of higher thought. One of the books, for example, is a uh, bilingual dialogue presented in German and in Judeo-Barbarisch is the name of the language. So I think Mendelssohn internalized that too. But um, the idea that language is important in uh, shaping or playing a part in shaping our ideas and behavior is a very ancient idea that was, of course, reworked in modern times. Um, in the 19th century as part of modern uh, nationalism, as part of modern group identity, and so forth. And then when the Yiddishist movement arose in Eastern Europe in the 19th century, it came with the opposite argument that the Yiddish language is the linguistic, cultural, and folkloric epitomization of the Ashkenazic Jew, um, and he or she would lose their identity if they gave it up. So, yes, it can be thrown in either direction. That's the fascination of that argument. Which creates an interesting point that I was going to ask about a little later on, because when you discuss uh, Yiddish in a, in a contemporary context, uh, you know, you point out that it is, in fact, being widely spoken and increasingly widely spoken as a, as a native language, even though some people say it's, in quotes, post-vernacular. So it seems curious from a uh, sort of outside perspective to say that that a, a language as relatively new, let's say, honestly, uh, has this particular status. Right. Um, as recently as the 1980s and 1990s, many of us in the secular Yiddishist movement, academic, cultural, literary, believed in our long gone, bygone youth that we were saving Yiddish in one sense or another by creating our small circles, classes, courses, to study the language, and we were ignoring our failure, the failure to build one Yiddish-speaking community where people speak it on the street, where children speak it to their parents. We were creating academic islands, which are fine and which are important. And it was not understood how ultra-Orthodox Jews, known as Haredim, were beginning to produce viable speech communities that can last centuries. At this moment, there are probably close to a million Haredi Yiddish-speaking Jews of childbearing age, whether they're in New York or in London and Jerusalem and Antwerp and Montreal and many other places. 
So there are a number of sources for this Haredi loyalty to Yiddish. That is very far from the debates uh, that we've discussed today that have been of interest to the secularists and the academics. It goes back to two different movements. Uh, one is that of the Hasidim, the 18th century Hasidic group founded by Israel Baal Shem Tov uh, in Podolia in the Ukraine that began to elevate Yiddish to a certain level of sanctity as part of Hasidic thought that every simple man and woman also has a right to speak to God directly, and it shouldn't be limited to the scholars and the know-alls. So the Hasidic movement elevated in the 18th and especially the 19th century the status of Yiddish. Then there was a very important um, movement in the Hungarian lands, as we call it. In other words, not today's Hungary, but the much larger Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where in the earlier 19th century, the Chsam Seufer, or Moshe Schreiber, um, developed religious laws uh, insisting on Yiddish and not speaking the language of the country. This was, of course, a reaction to the various modernizing movements among Jews in those lands. Um, those are perhaps the, the intellectual two streams from which, uh, to which things can be traced, but that's not enough. I think there's something much more, much bolder historically that doesn't go back to the thinking of any one writer or school. And that is the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, East European Jewry was in, virtually annihilated in its homeland, and the Yiddish language was virtually and almost entirely annihilated in its homeland. The secular Yiddishists, for all their, our, love of Yiddish, our grammar books, our books about Yiddish, our courses, our seminars. Um, as I mentioned, we have not built these speech communities where Yiddish has a vernacular future. But for the Hasidim and ultra-Orthodox Jews, to assimilate in language is to lose an essential part of Yiddishkeit Jewishness as they understand, not as we secularists. Now, after the Holocaust, Hasidic groups with roots in Hungary, Poland, Ukraine, reestablished communities in a way that nobody would have foreseen as possible, including many of us who studied Yiddish almost decades. Um, so I think to be an honest scholar, you have to look at facts and see when something is changing before your eyes. Hey, it's not what I thought it was 10, 20 years ago. And so it was by the late 90s that Jews in general were beginning to recognize that Haredim are a much larger percentage of the Jewish population and projected to be even larger with every passing year. A family where t of 10 to 15 kids where everybody speaks only Yiddish and nobody assimilates or intermarries, it has a different linguistic trajectory over the next 100 years than a modern family of 2.3 English-speaking kids who go to Hebrew school or Sunday school or visit Israel and, and, and so forth. A completely different notion of, of being Jewish. So the Haredim, um, they, it's not even fair to say they rescued or revived Yiddish because it never died among them. All that happened is that their numbers are now exponentially increasing because of their cultural success. And in my most recent visit to my native uh, borough park, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, this past April, or April 2016, I was as ever flabbergasted to find dozens more books that I had not known that are being published now in Yiddish for these communities, many weekly newspapers. In other words, a thriving language uh, that sadly has little connection with what these secular professors are teaching or what secular Yiddish clubs are, are into. But yes, so the Haredi uh, loyalty, language loyalty, is one of the big surprises of the 21st century. The um, tension you identify between, uh, between the secular viewpoint on, on Yiddish and the, and the Haredi viewpoint on digital, the continued use of Yiddish, I mean, you, you identify several reasons why, the, why there's a disconnect or why, in particular, uh, the secular point of view has been under pressure in the latter half of the 20th century because of its association of particular well, particular categories of, of ideas, particularly far-left groups right, right. and their, their thinking. I wonder if you'd um, talk a little about that. 
Well, in the later 19th century in Eastern Europe, Hebrew and Yiddish modern literature began to develop in parallel. The first writers were all bilingual. They wrote in Hebrew and in Yiddish. But after some years, by the later 19th century, there began to be polarization. That writing and uh, disseminating the modern Hebrew or the modernizing versions of ancient Hebrew that would become the modern Israeli language in one sense or another, that became associated with nationalism, Zionism, and all kinds of politics, in most cases ranging from the center to well right of center, but with all kinds of exotic combinations as well, such as labor Zionist and socialist Zionist. The Yiddishists, on the other hand, were becoming more and more identified with socialism and, to translate the Yiddish word, doikite, hereism. We have to build our future here not in the swamps or deserts of Palestine and to, to go fight the Turkish Empire that was then in control of it. Um, so the Yiddishists tended toward the various leftist movements. Just as there are multiple varieties of religion and religious groups and traditions, so there are multiple, multiple varieties of leftism. Today it's hard, harder for young people to grasp that the territorialists, the socialists, the anarchists, the communists, the various groups were very far from each other in their own eyes. Um, I like to give the example of the um, the so-called Rechte, right-wing Yiddish newspaper in New York that was socialist but anti-communist, but known as the right wing because the whole movement was so far left. And through, through most of the 20th century, that newspaper, the Fauvers, had on its masthead, on its banner, the Yiddish equivalent of workers of the world unite and the liberation of the workers depends on the workers themselves. And that was the right-wing newspaper, the anti-Soviet newspaper. The pro-Soviet newspaper, the Freiheit, of course, um, was pro-Soviet. Now, by the 1950s, in the, uh, by the height of the Cold War and the McCarthy era, the last thing a typical Jewish family wanted would be for anybody to have trouble uh, at work or with the government or in future employment resulting from being suspected of communism, which meant that on top of the, the powerful forces of assimilation to English in the United States and some other countries, um, Yiddish was being, uh, Yiddish culture, modern Yiddish culture was being identified with far-left movements even though many of the great writers, most of the great writers, had absolutely nothing to do with that. I mean, if you read Isaac Bashev Zinger, or Chaim Grader, or Zalman Schneer, you, you find nothing to do with their writing being left or right. They are great writers, whether they're novelists or poets. Um, nevertheless, the rap stuck. And uh, that was one of the factors that made Yiddishism very unpopular. And in a perverse way, or a curious way, one of the factors in the 1960s, that uh, decade of revolution and counterculture, that ended up having some left-wing Jewish and non-Jewish students in blue jeans seeking out elder Yiddish writers for the first time because they were left, <laughs> rebelling against their own parents, and that led to a certain um, rise of Yiddish university campuses from the late 60s. Uh, in the United States. So yes, that's a fascinating part. And incidentally, all these debates come out in Yiddish spelling debates, where the tiniest difference signals leftism, anti-religiosity, religious traditionalism, and so on. And so you can easily see by the spelling of a 20th century work uh, where something is coming from on a big spectrum of cultural um, points going from far left to far right. Am I right in thinking that the the tradition, uh, the, the secular tradition, is essentially considering Yiddish to be in a state of of, of um, post vernacular because of a lack of identification with the with the ongoing actual speakers of Yiddish in these uh, Haredian Hasidic communities and so on. Well, in my opinion, it's simply bad linguistics and dishonest scholarship. Um, to ignore close to a million people speaking the language you are writing about because they happen to spell something a little bit differently than you do. So mm -hmm. I have been quite polemic in my book um, 
in critiquing these authors who uh, who write the books about post-vernacular Yiddish. There is a post-vernacular Yiddish, and that post-vernacular Yiddish is strongest in the United States, where once Yiddish, the word Yiddish, shifted from being a source of shame and embarrassment about poor immigrant parents who have a lousy accent in English, and it shifted to something beautiful, nostalgic, connection with the past, with romanticism, with the shtetl, then you had a whole Yiddish industry selling Yiddish flowers and Yiddish thoughts and Yiddish dances and Yiddish jokes and so on without ever bothering to learn the language. So yes, that is the fake Yiddish movement that forgets that Yiddish is a language you have to learn, like you learn French or German or Spanish, that Yiddish is not singing a couple of songs or um, dance or proclamations of love for the language. And so um, if someone does choose to write a book about this post-vernacular scene, then it behooves that scholar to also mention prominently um, the survival and growth of real Yiddish in other circles. I mean, just imagine um, 100 years from now or 500 years from now, scholars reading these books let's say something that appeared in 2010 or 2015 about Yiddish having become post-vernacular and not bothering to spend a weekend in a neighborhood, in a society where you can see tens of thousands of people speaking only Yiddish. That it will be so strange that it will be comic. Yep. And another point I often make to secular Yiddishists, among whom I'm perhaps uh, not very popular because of these views in some cases, um, these Haredim pose a psychological threat to many modern Jews because they are the real McCoy. They speak Jewish, they look Jewish, they act Jewish. Judaism is not a fad or a trend or a business or, um, or a, a, merely a religion. It's life, it's civilization. And here we come to some irony. They are kind of what we today call Haredi Judaism was one way or another the Judaism of our own ancestors about 100 years ago, which is not very much in history. So that's certainly, I always think of the Woody Allen scene in Annie Hall, where the, the non-Jew sees the Jew and he sees the earlocks, the payas and the hat, or perhaps it's the Jew fearing that the non-Jewish uh, mother, prospective mother-in-law, love interest parent is seeing him that way. Um, so, Haredim are very separate from modern Jews. There's very little deep social contact, which is bad, but that's the reality of it. So I think that these hang-ups affect scholars as much as they affect anyone else. But in the scholarly world, you come to other, um, you come to other kinds of arguments. For example, a number of books have come out in recent, uh, in the last 15 years that, that do talk about Haredi Yiddish, uh, claiming that it's not Yiddish, it's completely corrupt because of the differences in grammar and spelling, um, the collapse of the date of an accusative into a single objective case. Well, it so happens that that was underway in Eastern Europe also. Um, so where some of these colleagues see um, degradation or collapse, I see the development of Yiddish to its later 21st century incarnation, which will, of course, be different in English and Hebrew-speaking environments that are very different from the Slavic environment. Yes, but you, you make the point that uh, some of those language changes were predicted by uh, scholars from the, from the observation of what was in progress in the Absolute. turn of the 19th, 20th century. Well done, absolutely, yes. Barabarov, in a famous 1912 letter, said, look what's happening, the, the, there's, there's going to be a unification. And for him, he believed in, in language simplification as progress not through the eyes of the, the school teacher or Sunday school snob for whom a multitude of cases is a sign of sophistication. For Borachov, the development of Yiddish away from a multitude of cases was sophistication, and he correctly predicted what's happening. So in short, Hasidic Yiddish will need to be studied in great detail, and it is a very rich Yiddish, and uh, there is an awful lot to be Returning to the secular side, I get the impression you are more optimistic than than some of your colleagues about the prospects for uh, 
I don't know whether to say, um, I don't really want to say um, revival of the language in as much as, as you point out, there's the language is already living, um, but the possibility of creating sustainable communities in the secular Yiddish tradition. No, I'm not an optimist that the secularists will ever do that. It's only the Haredim who have the real drive for bringing up Yiddish-speaking families to the critical mass necessary to call it a neighborhood. I'm not talking about an individual family that ideologically does something. That's fine, but that's not a community. Um, I am very optimistic, firstly, about the future of Yiddish because of the Haredim and the Yiddish-speaking civilization that they are building uh, very rapidly, in fact with young marriages and the very uh, high birth rates and language and cultural and religious loyalty. On the secular side, what am I optimistic about? Perhaps that's a more constructive way of putting it. Um, in other words, not to, for me just to be bashing those who think Yiddish is a song and a joke and a business and, and, and not the language. On the secular side, there are many, a few thousand young people in the world who have many of them non-Jewish Europeans and uh, many of them Jews from America, Canada, Britain, Israel, and elsewhere, who will not bring up families in Yiddish, but they have mastered the language to the point where they can read the great works of literature in the original and communicate with each other in Yiddish. So I, I call that an island. I use that metaphor uh, in, in, from various points of view. An island is something real. It's not a fake, but it is an island. Um, in this case, it's a social island because it's it's part of these people's lives. It's not the everyday language for their daily life. Um, but the island is very important. They are learning the real Yiddish to read the great literary masters, whom the Hasidim, by the way, want nothing to do with. And it's important. So that sophisticated literary Yiddish continues to be read and studied. Now, at this point of the discussion, we come to the very um, pained question, what about the future of Yiddish literature? Well, my first prediction will be, would be that in Haredi circles, with all their books and magazines, you see year-to-year growth in sophistication, um, a little bit parallel to what happened in Eastern Europe in the early to mid-19th century. So it's perhaps most likely a new writer will come out of there. But then you have us, so-called secular Yiddishists, also publishing books in some cases in Yiddish. I'm at work now on trying to complete my fourth collection of Yiddish prose, but I don't have any proclamations to make about it other than that I'm doing it. Um, And it will be for others to decide whether it's worthy. There's been a big problem that because secular Yiddish is no longer a natural cultural market, that any new book that comes out of prose or poetry or uh, drama tends to attract one of two extreme reactions. One, they say that the guy is, the author is Shakespeare and it's a great new talent and it's saving Yiddish, or the other that it's complete rubbish and a waste of time. And the truth is that each author has to be studied on his or her own merits. But these efforts should at least be recognized because these are people who write books in Yiddish. There may be up to 20 in the world today, uh, perhaps a bit less now, uh, people born after the war. But it tends to be us baby boomers who were born in the uh, years in the 40s or in the 50s, um, rather than the subsequent generations, none of whom has yet written a book from the secular. Our time is uh, nearly up, so I would like to conclude by asking you about your future research plans. Well, perhaps I should ask you to say a little more about your book. Well, um, the reason I relocated to Lithuania was to do my my project of a language atlas of Yiddish in the Lithuanian lands, northeastern Yiddish. I've put up the first 30 maps on my website, dovetkats.net, under atlas. And until about two, three years ago, I was traveling all over Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, sometimes northern and eastern Ukraine, northeastern Poland, westernmost Russia, in search of the last Mohicans who speak northeastern Yiddish, Lithuanian Yiddish. As in the case of Hungary, the reference is not to today's Lithuania, but to a much greater territory that includes today's Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, uh, and, and so forth. That period has ended, and I'm at a personal crossroads now 
in that I have thousands of hours of tapes of my interviews that I still hope to go through in my own life and in any case to leave to a suitable institution to um, to publish and put on the web after me if I fail to do it. So I'm sort of at that crossroads because I feel in Eastern Europe we have just now, in the middle of the second decade of the 21st century, lost the last people who speak or spoke the full-blooded pre-World War II Yiddish. In fact, when a very dear friend of mine passed away two years ago in Vilnius, Melech Stalevich, I regarded him as the last one to speak the native dialect of, of Vilna Yiddish. I remember I was thinking, what's going to be now? He was the last. And then I began my perhaps chaotic project or ex exotic project of translating the Hebrew Bible into Lithuanian Yiddish to preserve the dialect that way. I just completed my eighth book um, yesterday. That was Ecclesiastes, which wasn't easy. Um, so, yes, this is all about cultural preservation without grand illusions that our projects, my colleagues, myself, we are not saving anything. We are not building any civilization. We are doing something. We are creating little islands of preservation, whether study, whether writing, whether translating, whether interviewing last Mohicans, and it's very important work without the grandiose um, accompanying explanations. For it. Um, so I hope to continue writing and researching, and I hope one day to write a new history of Yiddish, if I will have the opportunity. It's been difficult without a uh, full academic position for some years now, but I'm certainly leaving my notes and my findings and views uh, on various pages of my website. Uh, in Yiddish, by the way, I've started a column of Yiddish responsa, answers to questions, I've started a mini museum of Jewish Vilna, which has a lot of linguistic elements of Yiddish, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Well, it sounds like a fascinating body of work, and I think we'll all be grateful to you for it. So let me just conclude by saying thank you, Dr. Katz, very much for your time. Pleasure, Chris. Thank you. I've been talking to David Katz about Yiddish and power. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thank you for listening. <laughs>